This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This is the Holiday Special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. So here we are at the holidays, and every year we talk to Washington Post chief film critic Ann Hornaday about what's opening in the theaters, what's Oscar bait, and so on. Except this year... Many things aren't opening in theaters. Many more will open for one week and then just disappear into the great maw of streaming. And even though every major company is betting on streaming as the future of movies, almost every major company is losing their shirts on it. So what's going on with the movies? And good to have you with us. Happy holidays. Thank you, Gil. Same to you. Let me let me start with Glass Onion, the new Knives Out Mysteries. I've invited you all to my island. Hi. Because tonight, a murder will be committed. My murder. Once you're dead, will we still be able to talk to you? Yeah, I'm not playing dead the whole weekend, dude. This is truly delightful. Solid reviews from most critics, including you, widely anticipated by the audience, which enjoyed the first Knives Out movie a few years ago. By the time you could go, hey, honey, you want to go to the movies and see it? It's gone. It's done. One week. That's it in the theaters. What does this say about where we are? Well, I mean, it's it's such a strange situation with Knives Out because it was such a surprise hit back in the, you know, when it, the first one came out. And I don't know about you, but we were one of those families that went to see it as a family on Christmas Day. It was one of those wonderful movies where you could take multi-generations. Everybody found it funny. Everyone had something to latch on to. It was just a great all-round entertaining movie. And then it does very well. And who snatches it up but Netflix? (laughs) And Netflix is not in the theatrical movie business. They're in the streaming business. They very, you know, I think from their point of view, charitably agreed to distribute it for a week in theaters. But it just completely kind of defeats 
just what we all loved about it, which is it gave us all something to do, you know, and, and yeah. it played like gangbusters all the way through that holiday season. I have read that Ryan Johnson, the director, um, has asked Netflix to extend the run and to bring it back. I think, you know, look there, but, but again, this is not their business model. You know, they don't, they don't make their money from box office. Uh, we seem to be going through another period. We're trying to figure out what is the theatrical movie business? The difference now is that uh, we are, I think, still experiencing a bit of a pandemic era reluctance on the part of especially older moviegoers um, who, you know, they're just not going at the same rate as they were pre-pandemic. So we might, you might have a tar, a she said, an Armageddon time. Um, the Banshees of Inisherin, the new Martin McDonough movie. These are all kind of classic sort of Oscar worthy films. Um, but rather than see all of those and rush out to the theater to see all of those, I think people are really being pickier, you know, about what they want to go see. And of course, not only is that because they're maybe reluctant to gather still in theaters, but also there we've had now two, almost three years of um, being really conditioned, you know, to watching things at home. I mean, it's almost like if it's, you know, if it's not going directly to streaming, like with the Knives Out, that that brief theatrical run is really just a promo for the streaming. Yeah, we used to have three kinds of movies that you and I would be talking about on this holiday special every year right. that, you know, were coming to the movies. We'd have the big event films. Those are still out there. The ones with tons of special effects generally made for a younger audience, the Marvel films, the DC films, all of that. Then you'd have the pure family films. You know, you'd bring out the animated films and, and all of that. And then you'd have what you described earlier as Oscar bait, uh, you know, end of the year, top of mind when people are voting for the Oscars, the sort of movie, though, that used to win Oscars for actors. I just think that we're really experiencing a generational shift now, whereas things like Black Panther were obviously Avatar 2 is the big like that's the, the Black Panther and Avatar 2s are those big special effects extravaganzas that are going to appeal to younger people. Um I don't know. I just feel like there, you know, no longer are people going to be automatically inclined to run out and see the new Steven Spielberg like the way that they might have been once. You know, and I was talking to um, a theater manager here in Washington um, who, speaking specifically about the Oscar sort of business model of using the Oscar season to plump up your box office, that's even kind of outmoded just because of attention spans. Yeah, you know, that's true. How many movies have I been excited about lately compared to yeah. uh, my wife saying, hey, the second season of Slow Horses has started. Right. Oh, great, great. You know, and, and I know. you know, Gary Oldman, I mean, you know, movie uh -huh. quality, Kristen Scott Thomas, I mean, movie quality stars right. in a beautifully plotted, really interesting show, the kind of thing I might have gone to the movies four years ago. Exactly. You just said it. I know. And and I mean, I must say, I, I, I do think part, I think it's so sort of an economist would say overdetermined. You know, there are so many factors that are converging on this the pandemic, streaming, habits, generation. But then we have the movies themselves, you know, and I just, and I do think when you look, I mean, 
I'm a fan of a lot of these movies. I thought Armageddon Time was wonderful. I I'm, I am a fan of Tar. It's a very polarizing film. It's not for everyone. Um, but you know, I am. I don't. I am missing that kind of all rounder. I guess maybe last year that might have been Belfast. You know, like the movie that mm-hmm. you sort of send people to and be confident that they're going to get value from. You know, on some, you know, that it's just um, it's not super dark. You know, it's not super nihilistic. Um, it's not you know hyper intellectual. It's just it just gives you a really rewarding aesthetic and emotional experience. And I just again, I I am kind of. Um, it pains to be able to recommend anything like that right now. I mean, I have my sort of favorites, but you know, I can't just send people wholesale to go see Banshees of Sharon because it really has a very dark, I, I would even see, say cruel streak to it that I just can't say, Hey, yeah, go, you know, you'll have a ball. It's not that kind of movie. Um, so I think we are missing a certain kind of category of film that I would really like to see come back. So to end this on a nicer note, you mentioned early on that you had some favorites in terms of what is out there in movies right now or coming. So give us give us a few of those. So we've got something good to hold on to here. Well, you know, like I said, I am I am a fan of um, of Armageddon time. Something's bugging you. What is it? Sometimes kids say bad words about the black kids. What do you do when that happens? Obviously nothing, of course. You think that's smart? Next time those schmucks say anything bad about those kids, you're going to say something. It's interesting. There have been so many. I think one thing the pandemic did was send filmmakers into their memories. And we have so many, and Belfast actually being one of them too from last year, where these filmmakers are sort of reflecting on their past. And James Gray came up with this really very interesting film about coming of age in Queens in the 1980s and his um, sort of dawning awareness of of his Jewishness, also his race as a, as a white boy and kind of how his identity is defined by those things and 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 sort of misunderstood at the same time. I I just thought it was a really interesting, very honest portrayal of somebody kind of coming into that sort of awareness. One that's coming up that I really liked is called Empire of Light um, with Olivia Coleman and yet another absolutely exquisite performance. Look around you. This whole place is for people who want to escape. People who don't belong anywhere else. How do you feel? I do feel a bit numb, I suppose. The world is changed. It's about people working in a sort of beautifully run-down theater in Britain, again, in the 1980s. Um, it's just a very humane drama about human beings loving and misunderstanding. And it's also just a great... Um, it's a great tribute to the act and the, the passion of movie going, which I really appreciated. You can all follow Anne Hornaday in the Washington Post, where she is the chief film critic. And happy holidays. Always a pleasure. Gil, same to you, my friend. Thank you so much. Bye. 
That, of course, is the sound of Switchfoot, the Grammy-winning rock band out of San Diego that has been together and making hits for, well, can this be right, a quarter of a century? One million years. (laughs) (laughs) One one million years, B.C., before Christmas album. Uh, We're talking with John Foreman and Tim Foreman, uh, the brothers, of course, who have led this band, and they're joining us in this holiday special because they've just released their first Christmas album titled... This is our Christmas album, and almost as an antidote to the hundreds of seasonal songs that talk about snow and sleigh rides, they went in a completely different direction to sing about the kind of Christmas they know. Welcome to my California Christmas Twinkling lights on all the fake palm trees Only snow that falls How's it going? It's going good. Good to have you with us. So is it the fact you took your name from a surfing term, or is it just the sound and the arrangement of this song that made me think of the Beach Boys when I first heard it? I love the Beach Boys. I think Pet Sounds is a masterpiece, and any correlation you might find will be appreciated. <laughs> we grew up on um, on that stuff, and we, it felt like um, so many albums, they feel great when you're listening to them in a cold you know, winter wonderland, but we wanted to make a record that represented where we're from, Southern California, you know, the beach, Christmas tree on the beach. What is it also about surfing and rock and roll? I mean, other hobbies don't seem to cut through the same way and combine the way rock and surfing always have. I mean, you know, people don't make an album to do scrapbooking by. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think, um, you know, surfing, most of the time you're staring at this infinite horizon, you know, and that's, that's good fodder for songwriting. And um, in art in general, you know, getting outside of yourself and um, seeing something bigger than all that. I do think also um, surfing and rock and roll have this iconoclast identity of going against the grain of whatever is happening in the world. And I, I appreciate that embrace as well. It's also something that is where an individual takes on, you know, the world takes on life and death in some circumstances. I mean, it's it's a kind of challenge. There is. Yeah, there is something kind of very rock and roll about it. I think it's the reason why we're still a band. We set all, all our disagreements out in the water. and uh, That's right. The ocean is a, is a wonderful referee. Yeah, well, obviously it's worked better for you than it did for the Beach Boys, so there's that. <laughs> well, here's the problem. The Beach Boys didn't surf. That, that, I feel like they, that was their one yeah, flaw. Only one of them, right? So, yeah. you know, they didn't, yeah, they, they couldn't s- settle it out in the water like that. There you go. So was a Christmas album something you guys always wanted to do, or was something where a record company goes, hey, guys, we need a catalog album. It's nice that you've had 12 smash albums and all, but uh, we need something that's going to be there year after year. Yeah, no, we'd, we'd always talked about um, you know making a Christmas album at some point, you know, and um, I think why that some point became now was uh, really uh, prompted by being home in 2020 and... Um, realizing that the Christmas album that we wanted um, didn't exist yet, you know, um, sort of be the, be the Christmas album you want to see in the world, you know, uh, spending time at home uh, more than we had and being able to uh, kind of think about, well, what would that look like? You know, what would a distinctly Switchfoot Christmas album sound like? And, um, and then off we went. So tell me about that. Tell me about what, you thought there wasn't out there because it's a huge range of Christmas albums, obviously from, you know, Phil Spector to, to Bob Dylan a few years ago. So what did you think was not out there? Yeah. So I think went for me when I'm making a Christmas playlist, um, which I had never done until 2020. Um, 
I'm looking for something that represents uh, kind of what I'm feeling. And for me, Christmas is, is uh, it's a polarizing season. It is, you know, you're celebrating so much. There's so much to be thankful for. And yet it also, for me, brings into focus the things that are wrong with the planet. Things that are, you know, there's a song that starts out um, singing about the, the man on the freeway on-ramp. And I think for me, this Christmas tries to wrap its head around not only the, the beauty of Christmas, but also the dilemma of Christmas. And tell me about the dilemma of Christmas. Well, I mean, as a songwriter, it's an incredible, uh, incredibly fertile ground to write and, and grow songs from because you have all these uh, polarities. You have, you're celebrating gifts. You're celebrating um, the idea of, of that we have everything we need with our family and friends, and yet it is the most, uh, you know, you're also celebrating capitalism and materialism and, and the sharp, you know, the, the arguments at the shopping malls and all of this. I think it's, it's this time where if you, if you say one thing about Christmas, you can also say the opposite very quickly. Well, and I think, you know, as a songwriter too, you're, um, you're diving into memories, right. And, and your storytelling. And, uh, there's very few, uh, uh, canvases more rich with stories than Christmas, you know, uh, you, some of your earliest memories, I don't care who you are in, in the U S at least, uh, some of your earliest memories will involve Christmas, you know, some happy, some sad, um, lost uh, loved ones, um, uh, hopes for the future, you know, it's all there. And, um, it's it's a great starting point. The interesting thing about the band, which is still in many people's minds a, a Christian rock band, even though your fans and your songs are just you know cover this this huge range, is they're never just yeah whatever people believe. Let's just make it simple so they can latch on to that. You, you talk about and you sing about the complications of belief. That's that's rare these days. I've heard you guys talk about. Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Soren Kierkegaard and C.S. Lewis. There's there's a depth and intelligence here and a searching that um, isn't present in a lot of lot of lyrics when people are talking about either this time of year or religion in general. Well, I mean, I, I guess I, I don't believe that faith is a rival. I think faith is the beginning of the journey, you know. And I've, I I I I will forever be a novice. I don't pretend to think I can say, I know, you know, I think I'm, I'm the guy who's going to encourage the question and, and the wonder. And that's kind of, I think, where the songs begin. I, I remember our dad uh, telling us when we were young, never trust a man without a limp. And I think that's, um, that's true in, uh, in how, you know, art hits me, you know, that, uh, there's gotta be some salt with the sweet because that's life, you know, and, um, in order to sing about, um, hope and joy, you need to also acknowledge the the wound and um, and put it all in the song. You put it all in the song. You also put it in your life. Switchfoot's been involved in more humanitarian causes than than I could reel off. You know, I can mention a, a couple, Keep a Breast Foundation, Habitat for Humanity, Invisible Children. I, it, it just goes on and on. Why has that been such an important part of your lives? I think it's a, a whole lot more important to, you know, do something than to sing about it. Actions speak louder than words. Um, I think, yeah. I mean, we whenever we go on tour, we we're, our goal is to is to make the world a better place in little ways, sure, but also in tangible ways. We, we're partnered with uh, Food for the Hungry right now, trying to um, you know bring hope to people around the world. I, I think it's a beautiful thing to think that you can actually 
do that with uh, with the means you have available to you. I mean, it's it's such a dream to think that we can write songs and pursue this dream, but also um, impact people whose lives will never meet in Bangladesh. The idea of of Christmas in California, you know, get, getting back to the uh, song that we played and the and the album general and how different it is from the songs usually recorded. As a matter of fact, generally in California, often by musicians recording songs, you know, in the summer who've only seen snow when mom and dad took them up to Big Bear. It's <laughs> it's a great concept. And it's interesting how generally it's lacking out there because much of the United States, you know, the South, the South parts of the Southwest, not the mountainous parts, you know, California, where you guys are from, um, it, you know, snow and Christmas and sleigh rides and things like that aren't really a part of their life or celebration. Yeah, you, you know what is um, uh, our version of sledding where we, we're from is a uh, it's a little known sport called ice blocking. I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but uh, that was our that was our childhood sledding. We would go to the store and we would buy an ice block each, and we'd sneak into the golf course at night, and um, you know until you got kicked out and you're sliding down these uh, these grass hills on a block of ice in the dark. It's, uh, it's amazing. And, um, yeah, that's our, that's our sledding. I love it. I love it. It's, it's a great thing until you hit the water hazard. I take it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Look out for the sand trap, right? Yeah, exactly. So tell me more about where you were going with the songs that you wrote for this album, because the album's interesting in that it's, uh, it's half songs that you, you wrote and then it's, uh, half more traditional stuff. Yeah. So again, the idea of, um, making the Christmas album that I'd want to put on you know, this whole, this whole project centered around the vinyl. And so on the vinyl, on one side, it says songs we wrote and flip it over. It's songs we didn't. And so we basically cherry picked our favorite songs from the past. And, you know, a lot of them have that, the bitter and the sweet that we were talking about. And then the songs we wrote, because I feel like that is the Christmas album I wanted to hear. It was some new songs, some old songs, you know, I think that's a beautiful thing about Christmas. Um, you know, holiday music in general is it's, it's such a incredible canon of songs, some that you love, some that you hate. And, um, this was our chance to, to scratch that itch. The Christmas time, you've got these big radio stations and, you know, Spotify lists where it might be a Switchfoot song followed by Bing Crosby. It just doesn't happen any other time. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Um, and I think even within this album, we tried to take full advantage of that. You know, uh, you get to use the expensive chords as we call them. Uh, around Christmas time, you know, this, this great, uh, uh, great catalog of, you know, amazing songs that were written in a different time where, uh, you know, uh, there's just this richness of chords that you put that into a modern pop song and it, it feels maybe a little, uh, too cheeky, you know, but, uh, at Christmas time, it just captures all of that nostalgia from, you know, Frank Sinatra or whoever it was you grew up listening to, um, around Christmas time, uh, you know, the, to be able to capture that nostalgia and, and put it in our own spin was, was really a lot of fun. Yeah. And it's fun. And it's fun because it's one of the few times the families don't fight over the car radio. It's, uh, or, or, you know, the Spotify playlist or, or whatever, where it's, um, yeah, Sinatra comes on and the parents and the kids are happy. You guys come on, the parents and kids are, are happy. Maybe Santa got run over by a reindeer comes on and everybody's happy to turn it off. But still, <laughs> there's this kind of unanimity in terms of music, which, again, is is rare. Yeah, it is. And I think um, especially, I don't know, in a, in a time where um, music is is fractured and splintered into so many different subgenres and all of that, I think it's beautiful to have have a little bit of history, you know, to be able to to hear something that my daughter will 
want to listen to that's 50 years old, you know? There are, let's talk about the subgenre thing because you guys really went through that, maybe still going through that. There are um, areas that we stray into with you that we don't with most rock bands. A lot of people will, you know, define you as a, as a Christian rock band. And does that still segregate you into specific playlists that ignore the wide fan base that you have for your songs? Is, is that still a, a problem? Are you guys, you know, fine with that or what? You know, I mean, I think for anyone open-minded enough to potentially listen to someone that they, that they might disagree with, um, you know, for me, I, I love the Beastie Boys. I love, you know, Ben Harper. I love, sure, um, all sorts of people that come from a different standpoint that I might disagree with, but I, I, I don't, I've never segregated music that way. Um, I think some people, if, if people are closed minded enough to say, I'm only going to listen to people that, that adhere to my belief system. Um, you know, that I feel like maybe we're not their band. We're for any open-minded soul. You know what I mean? I had a, a guy come up to me the other day who, um, he came to our tour and we're playing a couple Christmas songs. Um, and he's like, yeah, I just wanted you to know, um, uh, I'm a Jewish kid, um, grew up a couple towns away from you in San Diego and, and our whole synagogue would, we come to see you every time you play, you know what I mean? So it's, I think it's, um, there's, there's beauty in, in all, all over the world and we've never wanted to, you know, use our faith to sell our music or use our music to sell our faith, you know, just being honest in songs and for any any honest open-minded soul to listen yeah it's it's you know definitely not a problem from you guys or even uh people who listen when they're exposed to you but i remember talking to a uh, dion uh, ages ago one of one of the great you know rock and rollers from the 50s and still around and still active and dion is a, just a wide range of music that he likes to do he's had blues albums he's had folk albums he's had religious albums he's had doo-wop albums and all that and he was complaining to me this was more of a thing when there were actually record stores but still he said there wasn't just like a dion section with all the other stuff there'd be you know a couple of things over in the blues section a couple of things over in the religious section a couple of things over in the folk section and he said they keep wanting to album by album you know, define a genre as if that's more important than just what I'm trying to do artistically. Yeah, that's a really interesting thing. I mean, genres are great to put into boxes and, and try and sell something, but they're not really good for art. Yes. Yeah, you should have that range. A couple of the things about Switchfoot that I love, one is it's always growing. You know, the stuff you're doing now, in fact, from album to album, hasn't sounded entirely like the album before or anything, which is terrific. It's always something to look forward to. The other is, and I guess it goes back to some of the things we were talking about earlier, the things that you are willing to explore in your songs, the lyrics are smart. I, I think maybe only Richard Thompson has as many listeners making Google references as much as you guys do sometimes. <laughs> well, I'm honored you think so. I mean, we spend uh, months, you know, writing lyrics and and agonizing over them. And, and I, I enjoy it. I, I think, um, I mean, the beautiful thing about any of these subjects, you know, faith is doubt to, to doubt is to believe. And, and, um, you know, truly when you're, I, I've, I, I think that there's so much to explore in a song that I have a hard time putting into a conversation, you know, but the song is this incredible venue to express and explore and, and, you know, to walk through and figure it out. This is the time of year when many Americans think about giving to charities, both because it's the season to be in a 
giving spirit, and also because people are looking at their taxes and looking for a way to get a deduction that actually might feel good. But where to give and how to and to whom? A new company is trying to make this easier and also make it easier for those contributions to stay where you live. Sean Tacey is an attorney based in Seattle, Washington, and is the founder and CEO of Our Mayberry, an online platform that says it wants to democratize giving to charities. Sean, good to have you with us. Happy holidays. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you. And I should admit, I have no idea what the meaning is of what I just said. What do you mean by democratizing giving to charities? Well, I appreciate the question. Um, During these times, we are seeing just a a wonderful proliferation of technology that to date has been used um, uh, by, by platforms or entities. And where we're seeing the greatest movement in our culture right now is the people themselves. The people who care the most need the tools to do the most. So democratizing uh, charitable giving means to take the technology that exists today and bring it down to the level where the people can actually gather in groups, organize themselves, and use their greatest power for the greatest good. The cool thing about this, and if you can explain how this works without getting, you know, too technical, because it's not like we can do a uh, overhead projector slideshow here on the radio. But the cool thing about this is one of the reasons I used to go to my local store to buy something, even if I could get it online, delivered right to my house, was they were involved with the community. You know, there'd be the pictures of the Little League team they sponsored on the wall, and and they'd have uh, collection things for local charities, for the, for the guy who fell and hurt himself and needed a new wheelchair, and all that kind of, of local giving, which as people have gone more and more online, has, you know, kind of happened less and less. This uses technology to really kind of restore that. Correct. And, and, and I love what you just said about local businesses being connected and, and typically working hard to do all that is necessary to support their communities. That is the heart and soul behind what we want to do with our Mayberry. Uh, and, and, but, you know, during COVID, it got really, really difficult to be able to meet in co-presence and to do those types of fundraising events. So virtual giving, virtual charitable events, is really come into our lives and and people have enjoyed it and they've been relatively very successful. We want to turn, you know, the offline experience and the online experience into a lifestyle of giving and giving back. Uh, And the way we do that is to really combine in in partnership all of those wonderful small businesses and, and large businesses who have a heart to partner with charities to give back where we create a marketplace and a, a, a platform of commerce where people can Supporters like you and I can make every transaction that we enter into as consumers um, uh, provide a contribution to support a charity that we care about. Um, What we want to do is take that spirit and really turn it into a culture, a lifestyle of giving. And this time of year with with, um, uh, these wonderful holidays that we get to experience, there's a spirit of selflessness and giving that people get a lot of joy out of. And how about if we turn that type of lifestyle into something that is enjoyed year round? But how exactly does this work? So I'm a business and I'm interested in, you know, supporting some local charity in my town or I'm a local charity in my town and I want more contributions and I want to make that connection to business. How do you guys help those two sites come together and interact? 
Oh, it's a great question. Well, for I'll, I'll take charities first because it's it's you know the quickest way for charities uh, can be up and running and taking donations on our platform or or their website using our technology within within minutes, and it's uh, at no cost to them and it's extremely um, uh, proficient and it comes with a lot of fundraising tools that uh, other platforms don't have nor do they focus on. Um, and so for charities, we give them uh, just a, a robust platform to be able to manage all of their fundraising needs. But we also involve commerce, the power of commerce. So many charities are actually fighting over the 2% that people donate, which is the average in the, in the country. 2% of our wages is donated. Uh, what about the other 98%, right? The 98% that's being spent on uh, consumer goods and services. We give charities the ability to take their social capital and be able to optimize that and give their supporters a place to shop where every purchase um, results in a contribution to uh, the charity. On the on the business side, <clears throat> it's you know if you're a business and you don't have an online presence, we give you a store. Not only do we give you a store that you can upload all the products you want in, into it, but then we give the ability to partner with other charities where a click of a button places you into um, a marketplace that these charities have um, put together as a fundraiser on their own personal website. So by a click of a button, you are now taking one store and it's now being promoted and available for purchase in multiple marketplaces with great exposure to really the customers that you want exposure to, which are people who are going to buy more, refer more, and stay loyal to your business. Since we're talking about online, people are going to be worried about this and they have every right to be. So the question is going to come up. So how is the transparency here? How do I know that, you know, whatever percentage of, of what I buy from that business is going to a local charity, how do I know it's actually getting there? Gosh, I, I so appreciate this question because this was one of my personal frustrations with uh, making donations myself and, and why I began uh, to develop this platform. It is, I want transparency and I want accountability and I don't want to negotiate it or read about it. I want to see it. And our platform has a real time at the point of purchase. We have, you know, we have a, a proprietary a split um, a payment technology that puts the share of the, 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 the charity's share of the contribution immediately goes to their account. So the business doesn't get to fake it until they make it. Instead, they are pledging that at the point of transaction, this money is going to that account and the consumer can see it. They have a record of the split. They have an accounting of all the money that their contributions have totaled up to and where they went. And so does the business. The business owner has a record of every transaction and every contribution that's been made. And likewise, on the charity side, it's all open. Everyone can see it and no one can negotiate it and no one can undo it. And, and so the consumer has the satisfaction. I directed my contribution and it is there at the time I swipe my card, at the time I push pay. And that was really important to us in developing this is to honor that supporter with the satisfaction of knowing that the good that they did actually went to where it was supposed to go. And we're really proud of that. And I take it since it's called our Mayberry, if uh, if anything went wrong, Sheriff Andy Taylor and uh, Deputy Barney Fife would be able to get right there and get right on it. That, that's right. And and but when you build the technology to have that split payment, um, it, it, it mistakes are, are negated because 
the transparency and accountability built into the system itself. If people want more information about this, uh, where do they go? If people want more information about this, uh, where do they go? Armayberry.com. It, 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 it reads just like it is written. It, it, we're, plow, we're proud to be our Mayberry, um, where you can come and uh, be a part of a community where it's safe, it's fun, and all the actions that we do there support one another in the causes that we believe in. Sean Tacey is an attorney based in Seattle, Washington. He's the founder and CEO of Our Mayberry. Thank you. Appreciate it. This is a season of holidays, among them Hanukkah. It's an interesting Jewish holiday because, though based on religious history, it is not specifically religious in nature. There's no Hanukkah service. There's just celebration, which includes, along with the candles, latkes. Correspondent Martha Teichner of CBS Sunday Morning tells us why, during the week of Hanukkah, every day is Friday. After the second or two it takes to light that candle, what is the logical thing to do next? Eat. Latkes, of course. Crispy, fried, slightly oniony potato pancakes with decadent, that's a euphemism for fattening, toppings. Why latkes? The simple answer is that they're meant to remind Jews of the miracle of the oil associated with Hanukkah. But this story is anything but simple. In 164 BCE, a devout Jew who called himself Judah Maccabee and his followers overthrew the Syrian Greek king who was trying to impose Greek customs and religion on the people of Israel. Hanukkah means dedication. It commemorates the victory of the Maccabees who retook the temple. Jane Cohen is a Jewish food historian and cookbook writer. And when they re-sanctified the temple and cleaned everything, they needed ritual oil for the candelabra. And the only ritual oil that was pure enough was only enough to last for one day, according to the story. But miraculously, it lasted eight days. But again, why latkes? Enter Judith, darling of the art world. Judith was, according to all accounts, this beautiful widow. And she set out to seduce Holofernes, who was holding the town of Bethulia under siege. And she had these very salty pancakes levivote and filled them with a salty cheese. And Holofernes, who intended to seduce or rape her, kept eating these. And he became so thirsty that he just drank incredible quantities of wine until he passed out. At which point, this beautiful widow chopped off his head. And by the Middle Ages, Jews in Italy were eating cheese pancakes during Hanukkah. Potatoes were cheap, and thanks to poverty among Eastern European Jews, potatoes became the key ingredient in latkes, Yiddish for pancakes. Nikki Russ Fetterman is a fourth-generation owner of Russen Daughters in New York City. For 105 years, her family's business has been Jewish food. Press it down. The mixture is formed into patties, which are first fried on the griddle, then deep-fried in oil. Hanukkah is considered a minor holiday for Jews, but it's got this going for it. The Talmud, Judaism's Book of Laws, decrees that during Hanukkah, there is to be no grieving and no fasting. These are really good. No problem. Mm, that's really good, too. 
if the latkes are good and plentiful. Yum. Correspondent Martha Teichner of CBS Sunday Morning. You're listening to the holiday special from CBS News Radio. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.